And if you turn in your Bibles to Joshua chapter 7, in the church Bible that's page 249, and in the large print page 338. And we're going to be in Joshua chapter 7, and then just the first two verses of chapter 8. Before we uh, delve into the passage, I want us to think about something uh, for a moment, and that is fear. What is it that that you are scared of? Uh, I have a wife who's scared of the dentist. Uh, I had a nan who was so petrified of thunder or lightning, she would make my mum hide under the stairs until the storm was over. I'm not particularly keen of heights myself. All these fears are quite irrational, aren't they? And there's a new fear that's in the last number of years uh, been named, and a number of people have it. It's called nomophobia. And it's actually a fear of having no mobile phone signal. And loads of people apparently suffer from nomophobia. They're scared when there's no signal. And it's irrational, isn't it? You wonder how the human race has survived for so many thousands of years with no mobile phones at all, let alone a signal. And most of us, I'm sure, would say that we are scared in some way of death. It worries many people. Maybe uh, that's your biggest fear. But as Christians, nowhere in the Bible is death, or any of the other things, nowhere are we told it's something we should be worried about. Especially when we think of death. As Christians, in the New Testament especially, uh, we read uh, that to die, to live is Christ and to die is gain. That we're absent from the body and we're present with the Lord. To die for the Christian is a good thing, isn't it? But how many of you would say you're as concerned about sin as you are about death? Because again, if we read the Bible and we look at what is the most, uh, the biggest problem that we face... The Bible tells us we need to be far more concerned about sin than we are to be about death as Christians. Death has been defeated. Christ is risen. And sin has been defeated too. But in the process of sanctification, we know that it's still a struggle for us. And uh, Joshua chapter 7 should scare us and drive us to holiness. Rather than causing us to have some butterflies in our stomachs, we should have eagles there. We should read this and we should be uncomfortable in our seats because it is a frightening passage. It's not an easy one to read. And when we apply it to our own lives, it's not an easy one to consider and think about. And when we look at the punishment at the end, many of us may be uncomfortable with what God does there too. But as we look at Joshua chapter 7, I'm just going to read to start with the first verse. Because the first verse sets up the whole of the chapter. It all flows from this first verse, which we as the reader understand, but the people in the account don't understand at the beginning. It says, But the Israelites were unfaithful, In regard to the devoted things, 
Achan, son of Carmi, the son of Zimri, the son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah, took some of them. So the Lord's anger burned against Israel. Last week we looked at the marvellous and miraculous accounts of Jericho being defeated and the walls coming down. And it says at the end of chapter 6 that the Lord was with Joshua and his fame spread through all the land. And as we read the, the account of Joshua and we, when we get to this point, we're thinking, this is great. Look at what God's doing through his people. Look at how they're having victory. God's doing what he said. And then we get to chapter 7, verse 1, and it starts with that ominous word, but, but. But the Israelites were unfaithful. What could possibly go wrong? Sin. In Joshua chapter 6 and verses 17 to 19, we were told how the Israelites were to take the devoted things and take them into the treasury of the Lord. Let me read you those verses in Joshua chapter 6, verses 17 to 19. It says, The city and all that is in it are to be devoted to the Lord. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall be spared, because she hid the spies we sent. But keep away from the devoted things, so that you will not bring about your own destruction by taking any of them. Otherwise you will make the camp of Israel liable to destruction and bring trouble on it. All this silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron are sacred to the Lord and must go into his treasury. There was the command. Those things had to be spared and be taken into the treasury of the Lord. But the Israelites were unfaithful in regard to the devoted things. They didn't obey, or rather here, Achan, son of Carmi, took them. And this chapter is the fallout from Achan's sin. We see God keeping his word here. This is the fallout from sin. So let's read chapter 7. I'll read uh, the whole of the chapter. It says, But the Israelites were unfaithful in regard to the devoted things. Achan, son of Carmi, the son of Zimri, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of them. So the Lord's anger burned against Israel. Now Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Avon, to the east of Bethel, and told them, Go up and spy out the region. So the men went up and spied out Ai. When they returned to Joshua, they said, Not all the army will have to go up against Ai. Send two or three thousand men and take it, and do not weary the whole army, for only a few people live there. So about three thousand went up, but they were routed by the men of Ai, who killed about thirty-six of them. They chased the Israelites from the city gate as far as the stone quarries and struck them down on the slopes. At this the hearts of the people melted in fear and became like water. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell face down to the ground before the ark of the Lord, remaining there till evening. The elders of Israel did the same and sprinkled dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, sovereign Lord, why did you ever bring this people across the Jordan to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? If only we had been content to stay on the other side of the Jordan. Pardon your servant, Lord. What can I say? Neither Israel has been routed by its enemies." The Canaanites and the other people of the country will hear about this, and they will surround us and wipe out our name from the earth. What then will you do for your own great name? The Lord said to Joshua, Stand up. What are you doing down on your face? 
Israel has sinned. They have violated my covenant, which I commanded them to keep. They have taken some of the devoted things they have stolen. They have lied. They have put them with their own possessions. This is why the Israelites cannot stand against their enemies. They turn their backs and run because they have been made liable to destruction. I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy whatever among you is devoted to destruction. Go, consecrate the people. Tell them, consecrate yourselves in preparation for tomorrow. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. There are devoted things among you, Israel. You cannot stand against your enemies until you remove them. In the morning, present yourselves tribe by tribe. The tribe the Lord chooses shall come forward, clan by clan. The clan the Lord chooses shall come forward, family by family. And the family the Lord chooses shall come forward, man by man. Whoever is caught with a devoted thing shall be destroyed by fire, along with all that belongs to him. He has violated the covenant of the Lord and has done an outrageous thing in Israel. Early the next morning, Joshua had Israel come forward by tribes, and Judah was chosen. The clans of Judah came forward and the Zerahites were chosen. He had the clan of the Zerahites come forward by families and Zimri was chosen. Joshua had his family come forward man by man and Achan, son of Kami, the son of Zimri, the son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah was chosen. Then Joshua said to Achan, my son, give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel and honor him. Tell me what you have done. Do not hide it from me. Achan replied, it is true. I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. This is what I have done. When I saw in the plunder a beautiful robe from Babylonia, 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted them and took them. They are hidden in the ground inside my tent with the silver underneath. So Joshua sent messengers and they ran to the tent and there it was, hidden in his tent with the silver underneath. They took the things from the tent, brought them to Joshua and all the Israelites and spread them out before the Lord. Then Joshua, together with all Israel, took Achan, son of Zerah, the silver, the robe, the gold bar, his sons and his daughters, his cattle, donkeys and sheep, his tent and all that he had to the valley of Achor. Joshua said, why have you brought this trouble on us? The Lord will bring trouble on you today. Then all Israel stoned him. And after they had stoned the rest, they burned them. Over Achan they heaped up a large pile of rocks, which remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his fierce anger. Therefore that place has been called the Valley of Achor ever since. This is God's word. It's quite a frightening passage, isn't it, when we read it. And we learn some important lessons about sin as we read Joshua chapter 7. Some lessons that we all need to really realize for ourselves tonight. And the first lesson we learn is that we need to get real about the impact of sin. Get real about the impact of sin. What was the impact? Well, let's just briefly um, look at this story. As with Jericho... Uh, Joshua sends out spies to go to Ai. And they go up to Ai and they have great confidence. They come back uh, and they, they thought, well, just a few thousand will do. We'll, get, we'll go there and back and we'll come back in a day. No problem. This lot are easy. Jericho was big. 
No problem at all. Notice their overconfidence. The Lord and the ark are not mentioned at all here. They're so confident they just thought, we don't need to send the whole army. This will be, be really, really easy. Sounds to me like some kind of overconfident Premier League club about to face some minnows in the non-league in the FA Cup. And they turn up and they're overconfident. They've been saying in the newspapers, this will be easy, no problem at all. And the, the minnows win. And that's exactly what happens. The shock of all shocks occurs. And it is a shock. When you look at Jericho, this big city with the walls that seemed impenetrable, these people of Ai really looked easy. It was a shock, a big shock. If they had newspapers, the next day would have been full of this news of the shock that Israel, who had just defeated Jericho, lose to Ai. And they didn't just lose, it says they got routed. And it says 36 men were killed, and the rest of them were chased away. And in, at the end of verse uh, 4, it tells us, uh, no, at the end of verse 5, it says that this, their heart, the hearts of the people melted in fear and became like water. That's the description that was usually used here of the Canaanites, wasn't it? The Canaanites were in fear of God. When they went to spy out Jericho, it was the Canaanites that were petrified. They were melting, their hearts were melting in fear. And here, that description is used of God's people about a little place called Ai. It was a huge shock, a huge shock. And then Joshua and the elders, well, they do the right thing here. They, they seek the Lord and do so for an apparent long time. They sought the Lord till it was evening. And Joshua asks three questions. He says in verse 7, Why did you ever bring this people across the Jordan to deliver us into the hands of of the Ammonites. He doesn't understand. Why, Lord, would you, would you allow this to happen? Verse 8. What can I say now that Israel has been routed by its enemies? In other words, we, we've lost the fear factor now. No one's going to be scared of us if we can't even defeat Ai. And then in verse 9, he, he says, Lord, what, what, what are you going to do then for your own great name? People are expecting victory and we've lost. What is it you're going to do, Lord? He doesn't understand. These are good questions to ask when he doesn't understand what's going on. I mean, at the beginning of the book, Joshua's told, go into the land, I will be with you, you'll have victory, don't be discouraged. And here they they lose. He doesn't understand. And when we don't understand, it's a good thing to fall on our face before the Lord and ask him why he does so reverently. There's no impertinence here. He doesn't understand. But then in verse 10, God does something he hardly ever does in the Bible. He says, stop praying, basically. He says to Joshua, stand up. What are you doing down in your face? In some ways, it seems an unfair thing to say, doesn't it? Joshua's like, well, I'm I'm on my face because I don't understand. But God gives him the reason. It's not that they can't have victory. It's not that God isn't going to be... Uh, with them necessarily. It's not that he's not going to honor his great name. It's because of sin. Israel has sinned. They have violated my covenant, which I commanded them to keep. They have taken some of the devoted things. He says to Joshua, stop theologizing. Stop trying to work it out. The answer is simple. The answer is sin. Sin. Israel has sinned. 
The reason that they suffered defeat, the reason 36 men died, the reason their hearts were melting and like water was sin. It was sin. And God had told them in Joshua chapter 6, if you do this, if you do this, Israel is liable to destruction and bring, it will bring trouble on it. God had warned them about this. So in a way, Joshua should have been thinking, where's the sin? Because <laughs> that, that's, that's the only explanation in a way. But God reveals it to him, it's sin. And in fact, in Joshua 7 verse 11, in verse 11 there, we see that there are many sins. It says, they have taken some of the devoted things. In other words, these things were supposed to be for God in his treasury, but they've got them for themselves. They've been stolen, they have lied, they have put them with their own possessions. And the key verse to this whole chapter really, to me, is at the end of verse 12. I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy whatever among you is devoted to destruction. I will not be with you anymore. Serious, isn't it? Remember, these are, this is God's people here. This isn't a, a heathen nation. This is God's people, and he's saying, I will not be with you anymore. Notice two key things with the impact of sin in those first 12 verses. First of all, I want you to notice the corporate nature of the impact. The corporate nature of the impact. Throughout this passage, Achan, we're told, has sinned. But actually, it tells us Israel has sinned. It says in verse 1, the Israelites were unfaithful, and the Lord's anger burned against Israel... But Achan took the devoted things. But in verse 1, Israel were unfaithful. The Lord's anger burned against Israel. Notice in verse 11, Israel has sinned. They have violated my covenant. They have stolen. They have lied. They have put it with their own possessions. Notice in verse 12, this is why the Israelites cannot stand against their enemy. They turn their backs and run they have been made liable to destruction. All through this passage, Israel has sinned, but Achan took the devoted things. Now, in our, in our Western culture, we are very individualistic people. But this actually, in what the Bible says here, is a very biblical concept, not just because it's in the Bible, but it's all through the Bible. When we look at the church, how is it described? Paul describes it as a body. Not with individual parts that are on their own somewhere, but an interconnected part. So my arm is connected to my body. When my arm is injured, it's my body that is impacted, isn't it? If you think about uh, the flow of blood through the body, when we, we have a serious cut, the blood goes to that cut to try and heal, doesn't it? Our heart is impacted. If we lose too much blood, our heart stops. It's all interconnected. You know, we we love the part in 1 Corinthians where it says, when one member suffers, all suffers. And when one rejoices, all rejoice. And that's wonderfully true. But here, don't we see, if one sins, all sin. Your sin and my sin 
affects all of us. Nobody but God knew what Achan had done. But what Achan had done affected everybody. Do you see how, why I said at the beginning, this is frightening, isn't it? This is a frightening thing to think about. My sin impacts you. Your sin impacts me. Oftentimes when we we challenge each other on sin, what's the reaction most likely to be? It's nothing to do with you, it's my business. No, it's everything to do with me. And my sin is everything to do with you. It's everybody's business. That's what we see here, isn't it? Achan uh, took the devoted things, Israel sinned. Your holiness, my holiness, impacts the whole church. And you know what it made me think as I was reading it? As a church, we're busy with lots of good things. We're busy ministering. We're busy preaching the gospel. We're busy doing lots of things. But if one of you is hiding sin under the carpet, we could be wasting our time. Because sin needs to be dealt with. That's what this passage tells me. And get this too, Israel were a lot bigger than our church. You think that your sin doesn't matter because there might be a hundred other members who are living holy for God. That's rubbish. Your sin matters. It impacts everybody. It's a frightening passage, isn't it? A frightening thought. My sin impacts you. Your sin impacts me. And if we're hiding it under the carpet, God knows. And in verse 12, we're told the second major impact, the removal of God's presence from the community. That's the biggest impact, isn't it? I will not be with you anymore. That is why, by the way, in this passage, that is why Israel were overconfident in going into battle. That's why there's no mention of the ark. They never had the presence of mind to turn to the Lord beforehand because there was sin in the camp. That's why Israel were routed and those men died because there was sin in the camp. That's why all the mistakes that we read about through this passage happen because there was sin in the camp. What a tragedy. I will not be with you anymore. And, and, and you, you may not notice anything different about the per- like Achan. People might not have noticed anything different about Achan. But God knows. And if, I, if, if I'm hiding sin under the carpet, you may not, may not notice anything different about my preaching. I may preach just as... Uh, as, as, as good or bad as I always have. But it's God's spirit that is not with the message, isn't it? Oh, there can be some amazingly eloquent preachers where God's spirit is not with them if they are hiding sin under the carpet. It's not that we don't do well what we do, it's that God just isn't there. So if you teach Sunday school or lead music or pray publicly or uh, whatever you do, If you're hiding sin under the carpet, God's spirit is not going to bless that ministry. And in fact, if you're hiding sin under the carpet, we've seen it impacts us all. 
Isn't that what we've been reading about a little bit, or a lot, in Revelation, in the letters to the churches, isn't it? Where God says he's going to remove his presence from a community, from a church. Remove the lampstand if they tolerate sin. We need to get real about the impact of sin. It's not just about you. It's about all of us. And so, how do we deal with it? Well, we need to get serious about the removal of sin. The Israelites had to deal with their sin. And there are at least three ways here that we see sin being dealt with. There's the discipline of the sinner, there's the confession of the sin, and then there's the removal of the sin. So let's look at the discipline of the sinner. When we come to verse 12... There is hope in this verse. It's wonderful when we look at it closely. It doesn't end with, I won't be with you anymore, full stop. It ends with, I will not be with you anymore, unless. Unless. That's a really good word, isn't it? Unless. I love that word. That means there there is hope. Unless you destroy what is among you that is devoted to destruction. God will not bless a church that does not, that, that, that tolerates sin. It has to be removed from our midst. And the whole process that Joshua has to go through to root out the sin and the sinner shows that it needs to be dealt with. We can't just let it go. Now, discipline in a church is never a pleasant thing, but it's something we must do. And again, we've looked at that in Revelation, haven't we? Church discipline is important. It's never pleasant, but we can't tolerate sin. And we've seen the reasons why in the beginning of the chapter here. That's not to say, by the way, that we must be the perfect church, that no one can ever sin. But it does mean that we should challenge each other on sin and not turn around and say, it's none of your business. It does mean that if we see sin, we need to gently and lovingly challenge sin and not just ignore it. And it does mean that if someone refuses to repent, that that's when we need to exercise that discipline in the church. And this is why it's important. God will not be with us if we tolerate sin. And verse 12 uh, says that they are to destroy what's devoted to destruction. Here it's not talking uh, just about the devoted things, If you looked in Joshua chapter 6, you might be quite confused, because chapter 6 says those devoted things are to go to the treasury. So God doesn't say, take them from Achan's tent and take them back to the treasury. He says to destroy them. But it's more than just the things, it's the people. Achan was devoted to destruction. And when I say devoted, we'll see that he had plenty of time to confess his sin, but didn't. He was totally committed to his sin. And when a person in a church is devoted to destruction, because sin leads to destruction, doesn't it? We, we see that. When someone is devoted to that, they are unrepentant, in other words, that's when we remove them from membership, isn't it? We've got to destroy what is devoted to destruction. And we see here, though, You see, church discipline as well isn't just about getting rid of people. Actually, it's designed to try and win people back. 
is to win people back. And we see here that, that this happens here. Achan has ample opportunity to confess his sin as they go through this process. And we see that's the second part of getting serious about sin. We've seen we have to discipline the sinner, but the second part is confession of the sin. Verse 13, God says about consecration. We've looked at that before, haven't we? They are to consecrate themselves because they're going to be in the presence of the Lord. And then God goes through this process. And you may be asking the question, why didn't God just tell Joshua in the evening, oh, it was Achan, go sort him out. I have to believe here that it's to give Achan time to confess. I mean, why else would God go through this elaborate process of getting together in the morning, having consecrated themselves, and going from tribe to clan to family to man? Achan had multiple opportunities to confess his sin. The first opportunity, actually, is in verse 13. He says, tell them, consecrate yourselves in the preparation for tomorrow, for this is what the Lord God of Israel says. There are devoted things among you, Israel. You cannot stand against your enemies until you remove them. In the morning, present yourselves tribe by tribe. The tribe the Lord chooses shall come forward, uh, clan by clan. The clan the Lord chooses shall come forward, family by family. And the family the Lord chooses shall come forward, man by man. And Joshua told Israel, he told them what he was going to do here. He told them, so Achan had opportunity in the evening to confess his sin. He didn't do it. Perhaps he thought, I've hidden it well. No one's ever going to find it under my carpet. Perhaps he thought, there's just no way anyone can find out. There's thousands of people here. No one could possibly know it was me. There's any number of thousands of people that could have hidden this. I'll never get caught. Or perhaps... He was worried about it, but thought about the impacts of confession. 36 men had just died. It was still raw. There were 36 widows with children. Would you want to confess if you had to face them? The embarrassment of the the defeat was raw. No one's going to be impressed that it was your fault. He maybe made lots of other excuses. But the Bible tells us to confess sin, and in fact, in James, we're told to confess our sins to one another. But we can make all sorts of excuses for not confessing sin. Because we know that the consequences for confession can be quite serious, can't they? When we've got to go to somebody and confess to them, I have sinned against you, that's not an easy thing to do. We must recognize that. And because it's not easy and we have to face up to our shame we can make any number of excuses not to do it. I can understand Achan here. I can understand how he found it so hard to confess. Because I find it hard to confess. I don't find it hard to necessarily admit to God that I'm a sinner. I don't necessarily find it hard to admit to God when I have sinned. But boy, I find it hard to go up to somebody I've sinned against and tell them, I'm sorry, I was wrong. And sometimes I've done some things against people that are serious, and I've had to tell them, and it's hard. But the consequences of not doing so are worse. Let's see what happens. God instructs the people 
to present themselves tribe by tribe, clan by clan, family by family, man by man. That's another four opportunities he has to confess. And picture the people. Picture them around this valley in the morning. They've consecrated themselves. And then we see this amazing drama as the net draws in to Achan. They're around this valley and everyone can hear Joshua shout. And Achan's standing there and he knows. He knows he's sinned. He's had all night to think about it and he's not confessed. And he's standing there. And Joshua shouts out, Judah! And they would step forward and everyone else takes a step back. And Achan's probably thinking, this is quite a big tribe. I've got nothing to worry about here. But then he calls out the clan, the Zerahites! And the Zerahites step forward. And then he cries out, Zimri! And Achan's family step forward and you can see the net drawing in, the sweat pouring down his face as he knows, surely now, what's coming. And then as the men come forward, Joshua calls out, Achan! And he stands there alone as everyone else steps back. He doesn't confess. He's caught. There's nothing he can do. There's no confession. He's caught out in his sin. There was no repentance. He held out, didn't he, to the very last moment. And the only time he owns up to what he has done was when he had no choice. Because he knew that they were going to go to his tent and find the stuff there. Joshua told him to own up. My son, give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel, and honor him. Tell me what you have done. Do not hide it from me. Don't hide it from me. When I read that verse, I realize something. One of the reasons we don't confess sin is because it makes us feel dirty, makes us feel ashamed, makes us feel horrible. Give glory to the Lord. Confession and repentance brings glory to God. Yes, it's embarrassing at times. Yes, it feels horrible. But it gives glory to the Lord. Hiding it, do not hide it from me, doesn't. It doesn't. When we hide it, God exposes it. Look at the Garden of Eden. What did Adam do when he'd sinned? He went and hid from God. And God came, Adam, where are you? Why did God ask Adam where he was? Do you think God lost his omniscience for a moment? No, he wanted him to confess. Brothers and sisters, confess your sins to one another. Let's not hide them under the carpet. So how do we apply this practically? Well, first of all, if you have sinned against somebody, you need to go and confess it to them. And I would say, even if they don't know. You can sin against somebody and they never know it's happened. Give glory to God. Go and confess your sin. If you're having persistent problems with a particular sin, then confess it to somebody who can keep you accountable. I read somewhere that you, have to, you can find people uh, that are CIA, 
Confidential, intimate, accountable. Confidential, intimate, accountable. And I would recommend too that you have someone that you can mutually share with and confess sins to one another. And James chapter 5 verse 16 tells us to confess our sins to one another and it links it to the ministry of healing. Now without going into the ministry of healing, it does tell us that if we confess our sins, there is a ministry, they're blessed, isn't it? Confession of sins brings glory to God and we're commanded to confess our sins to one another. At the same time as encouraging confession of sin, I'll say here now that there are some sins of which, if we confess, there will be serious consequences for. That's true. I don't hide the fact that there could be most serious consequences for confession of sin. But if we are surrendered to God and we are committed to giving him glory, we do the right thing. And we take the consequences as God gives it to us. Because you may say, well, why would I confess that sin? Why would I tell anybody about that? It's horrible. God knows, and we need to give glory to God. And we can either glorify God, or we can protect ourselves and our shame. But, but God knows. But wonderfully... There is forgiveness, isn't there, with the Lord Jesus. As we confess sin, there is forgiveness. God has forgiven all of our sins. And as brothers and sisters in Christ, as we confess sins to one another, we should never be surprised that someone can fall into sin. And we should be ever so forgiving, knowing that Christ has forgiven us, shouldn't we? But what if we don't do this? What if we aren't confessing sin? What if we are hiding it under the carpet and not dealing with it? Well, look what happens to Achan. He owns up to his sin. He says, it is true, in verse 20, I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. This is what I have done. And then we see what the sin was, covetousness. Look how his sin spiraled. It begins uh, there in verse 21, I saw. And what did he see? He saw in today's money, I think about 15,000 pounds worth of stuff. So he goes into this uh, Jericho's being defeated. He goes into this house. He sees like an Amani suit. He sees uh, a bunch of cash on the side. He sees some gold bars and he thinks, oh, I'll have those. No one's going to know. There's loads of treasure probably in the other houses. He saw it. And I coveted. I took them and I hid them. You see it spiraling? I saw, I coveted, I took, I hid. It's interesting that it begins with a look, doesn't it? A warning here to be careful about what we see. We should put measures in place so that we don't see things that we would covet. So that means internet filters. It means not watching certain films if looking at a woman or a man is going to be something you covet. It means not spending lots of time trawling through eBay and Amazon and Argos catalogs and all those things that make you covet. I think Megan calls Argos catalog covet books, <laughs> which is a good name, actually. Because we see and we covet, don't we? We see and we covet. That's not to say we can't buy nice things or have nice things, but those things shouldn't be our idols. 
Jesus warns us about covetousness in Luke chapter 12 and verse 15. I'll read you from the authorized version. It says, And he said to them, Take heed and beware of covetousness. For a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things which he possesses. And in verse 23, when they, in chapter 7, when they, they'd got the things from his tent, it said they spread them out before the Lord. They gave them back to God. They said, God, we've sinned. We, we've, you know, because Israel had sinned, they'd been coveted. They spread them out before the Lord. They gave them to God for him to do what he wills with. And God wants them destroyed. And this is what happens. We see here that third point about getting serious about sin. We've seen that we need to discipline the sinner. And we see here we need to remove the sin. Remove the sin. And we look on in horror, don't we, at those verses in 24 and 25. Josh Aiken stands there, the head of the family, with his wife. And his daughter and his son and his animals and his possessions. And Joshua says to him, why have you brought this trouble on us? And when he says this trouble, maybe he's looking at the faces of those 36 widows who have just lost their husbands. Looking around at the camp, at the hearts that are melting in fear. Why have you brought this trouble on us? And then this terrible judgment rings out, doesn't it? The Lord will bring trouble on you today. And then it says how Achan and his family, it says, all Israel stoned him. And after they had stoned the rest, they burned them. We look at these verses, don't we? And we recoil in horror. Perhaps when you face people who are against God or Christian things, they'll bring you to these kind of verses and say, well, see what your God is like. Well, first of all, I would say, don't try and explain them away. They are there. They happened. And don't apologize for God. Instead, realize the sinfulness of sin and the holiness of God. Our God is a holy God, perfect in every conceivable way. We've seen that in, um, I mean, I love how this book of Joshua fits so well with what we're looking at in the mornings. We've seen in Revelation 4 and 5, haven't we, the holiness of God. When we looked at chapter 4, we saw how God was holy and inapproachable, but except for in chapter 5, the lamb that was slain. But God is completely holy. And this is God judging sin. And this, in fact, is what we all deserve. Every breath we take, every meal we have, every day we live is a mercy from God. Anything more than hell is grace, is it not? That's what we deserve. And he is still holy. And he still judges. And if you look at this and think, this is awful... Tim's going to take us through the rest of Revelation. You'll see the wrath of God. Don't let people deceive, deceive you into thinking that this is the God of the Old Testament and he's something completely different in the New. That's rubbish. God is always holy. And he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. 
Rather than question the justice of God, we should realize the sinfulness of sin and recoil. Secondly, when we question this, point people to Jesus. Point people to the Son of God who has died for sin. He took this punishment upon himself so we can be free. And thirdly, look at this passage and realize the importance of removing sin with radical discipleship. We're not going to be destroyed like Achan if we're believers in the Lord Jesus, but we suffer the consequences of sin and we suffer the removal of God's presence and blessing from our ministry. But very uh, very briefly, as we look at the beginning of chapter 8, look at the blessing of removal of sin. When Achan was dealt with, at the end of chapter 7, it says, the Lord turned from his fierce anger. Therefore, uh, it says that place has been called the Valley of Acre ever since. So God turns from his anger. And in verse uh, chapter 8, Then the Lord said to Joshua, Don't be afraid, do not be discouraged. Take the whole army with you and go up and attack Ai. For I have delivered it into your hands, the king of Ai and his people, his city and his land. You shall do to Ai and its king as you did to Jericho and its king, except that you may carry off their plunder and livestock for yourselves. Set an ambush behind the city. And we'll look at that chapter next week. But notice the irony here. Achan had been so keen to get hold of all the treasure, but what does God say here? You can have all the treasure of Ai. It's all yours. Go for it. If only he had waited. What a lesson for us, isn't it? If we wait on the Lord. But notice the difference here from chapter 7. He told Joshua not to be discouraged. God is in this chapter, isn't he? At the beginning, saying, don't be discouraged or afraid. God's presence is with them. In chapter 7, it starts with Achan stealing. In chapter 8, we see God speaking. And in chapter 8, we'll see next week that God gives victory to his people when sin is dealt with. When God is with us, sin can be dealt with and defeated. We can achieve amazing things for his kingdom. But let's confess our sin and deal with it. So as we close, I just want to have just a moment of silence. I know I apologize, I've gone over time. I've got a bit too excited. Um, But we need to deal with this, don't we? We need to deal with sin. And so just let's have a, a, a couple of minutes of silence. Let's come before the Lord. Let's confess our sin to God. After we've confessed our sin to God, we're going to uh, have someone read Psalm 51. And then we're going to sing. And then after we've sung and we go, let us go and confess our sins to one another. Let's deal with this problem that the Lord may bless us in our ministry. Let's have a moment of silence.